Welcome to the Public Sector Marketing Show, a podcast for government and public sector marketing professionals who want to level up their digital marketing and social media knowledge, skills, and strategic thinking. And now, welcome your host, Joanne Sweeney. Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of the Public Sector Marketing Show. New research has highlighted the need for political parties to do more to support female members from online abuse. While members of government are not alone in facing hatred and vitriol online, it does remind us that standing up to online abuse is required by all sectors. Often there's a fine line between freedom of speech and hate speech, but both are not two sides of the same coin. In today's show, I discuss identifying the signs of online abuse, what we can learn from the two Johnny's GAA catfishing stories, how to manage online abuse, and I speak to the National Women's Council of Ireland researchers, Claire McGing and Velasca Lima, who have developed a social media toolkit for political parties with practical steps to support female colleagues online. If you've been on Twitter recently, you will have noticed the trending hashtag GA Catfish. And this relates to the Two Johnnies podcast and in particular, Johnny B's story of being catfished over a number of months. With much investigation, the two Johnnies realized that this person in particular had not only been catfishing Johnny B, but over 100 other alleged victims also, and over a 12-year period. Now, what is catfishing? So catfishing is when somebody purports to be somebody else online, they steal somebody else's identity, and in many cases, maybe multiple identities. And basically, they're living a fake life online, communicating with individuals and organizations uh, with the intention of drawing them into a false sense of security, and in the case of Johnny B's situation, into a false relationship. So, what can we learn from that podcast? And if you haven't tuned in yet, I recommend that you do. It's episodes 222 and episode 223. Well, my takeaways, and as somebody who kind of does research and practice in academia in this field, it highlighted a number of key issues that I thought was pertinent to bring up in this podcast. So what is the intention or the motive of somebody that has a fake profile. That's the first thing that you've got to try and understand. Sometimes it can be psychological, maybe they just want attention and they're living their life vicariously through this fake profile. Others, it's a bit more intentional around economic gain and acting covertly and trying to get money out of unsuspecting social media users. But it's really important that we, as social media users, kind of take responsibility for doing our research and trying to decipher if somebody is real or not. So what questions should you be asking yourself? Well, in the first instance, have a look at their profile. Who are they connected with? Who are their followers? Who's following them? The people that are following them, are they in fact real? Do they have real comments on their posts? And do they have live stories? Because we know with stories, that content is often behind the scenes and we get a glimpse into people's real lives. Are they operating an anonymous account? And I have a huge problem with anonymous accounts. And I think 
it is one of the biggest challenges, but in the same vein, one of the biggest opportunities for the social networks. Um, when people go online, they give an email address, they give a name, it doesn't have to be a real name, and they give a date of birth. There's no requirement to prove who you are. So hiding behind fake accounts or purporting to be somebody else can cause real damage, not only to the users, but I think to the reputation and the operations of social networks themselves. Are these people engaging in hate speech? Some might not, and it might be in fact the case that they are engaging in quite the opposite to hate speech and trying to draw you in with compliments and flattery. And again, you've got to be very, very careful of that. We have to distinguish between real people and online relationships, and they are two very different things. So are they also targeting you and an organization? Um, where is their attention lying? So really have a look at their activity on their profiles and maybe you're connected with them on Instagram, but go ahead and have a look at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, have a Google search, really have an investigation of a complete digital footprint. Another signal to, to recognize online abuse is how you feel. And one thing that I would say is that people can't really question how you feel. It's up to you to have a discerning look and take a step back. And if you're in a situation where you're communicating with somebody, um, whether it's a bad actor, again, trying to extract money or whether it's somebody, you know, trying to get into a relationship with you that is completely fake, ask yourself, how do I feel about this? Very often when you have conversations with people at the end of the scenario, and this is something that Johnny B spoke uh, widely about, is that he had a gut feeling that something wasn't right. Um, inviting him to meet up, then her not showing up, um, having weird and random excuses for not showing up. If you feel uncomfortable, if you're feeling confused, if you're feeling a little bit just unnerved by the situation, trust your gut. Um, also have a look to see if they have a history of unsavory activity because that might spell something. Um, and then just really speak, speak to other people. Um, and in highlighting the catfishing story on the Two Johnnies podcasts, it seems that Johnny B has unleashed a Pandora's box of activity of Nikki on Instagram over a potential 12-year period. So if you're feeling confused or unnerved by a, an experience on social media, definitely, definitely have a conversation with somebody. Level up your social media skills by taking our diploma in social media, plus gain an industry qualification. Use the code SOCIALMEDIA20 for a 20% discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com. So if you find yourself in a situation or indeed you find your organization in a situation where you are facing online abuse, what should you do? I think I can never overstate the importance of taking action towards online abuse and not allowing it to fester and to explode online. So as an individual, make sure that you screenshot the abuse and document all the history of the abuse uh, in a timeline and take some notes. This is in case you, that you actually need to take it to law enforcement. And this is what the social networks would advise you to do also. Make sure you unfollow and block said individual and also report them to the social networks. 
if it becomes more of harassment and threats to you uh, or to people in your life, make sure that you report it to the police. Um, I would have to say maybe they're not adept uh, at online abuse, but there is new legislation coming into being, especially here in Ireland. For public sector in particular, make sure that you have a strong moderation and abuse policy. You need to know how to handle these situations. It's not enough to ignore it. You really have to be proactive in dealing with it. One really good practical tip is to add in keyword filtering within each social network. And that means that if people are using hate speech and a uh, unsavory language, you can actually moderate those keywords so that those comments are not actually published on your pages, on your accounts in comments. And this is a tactic used widely by police forces. I would also advise to have an escalation plan, especially for juniors who are working on social networks or your executives who may not have years of experience in press and media that you have. So make sure that there's supports available for them and also that there's a plan of action and steps that they can take that they are clear about if they need to escalate an issue. And remember, online abuse is not something that is should be tolerated. Uh, it isn't a freedom of speech. I've said that earlier. There's a clear demarcation between freedom of speech and hate speech. But I certainly think that um, online good digital citizenship is something that should be employed by all organizations and staff should be trained. So make sure you have a policy. Maybe engage in scenario planning whereby you have a dummy account and you then work out uh, a scenario where you know you're facing online abuse and then coaching your staff through it because this real life scenario planning can work very well and can stand you in good stead. In today's episode I want to introduce you to our brand new knowledge product and it's called Social Media Done For You. Think of it as like social media in a box. All the tools, strategies, and policies that you would need to implement great social media within your government or public sector agency. We've just released it on our website, publicsectormarketingpros.com, and you have lifetime access. And this includes any updates that I make to the resources. So what can you expect? Well, you have a template social media strategy, you have a range of social media policies, you have a 365-day inspiration calendar for social media, you also have checklists when it comes to hashtags, social and live video, auditing of your social platforms, and you also have template graphic designs that we have created in Canva, and all of these come with tutorial videos. So if you want our social media done for you product, go ahead, check it out on our website. And really, the price is amazing. A one-stop shop digital marketing and social media resource. Join our membership academy for 12 months. Access a library of how-to videos, template strategies, and organizational policies. Monthly live coaching. Attend webinars with subject matter experts. Meet and network with public sector pros from across the world. Use the code MEMBERSHIP20 for a 20% discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com.
In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Clara McGing and Valeska Lima, who are researchers with the National Women's Council of Ireland, and they've undertaken some very important work in terms of understanding the level of online abuse among female politicians in Ireland, and on the back of it, have developed a social media toolkit. So in this interview, we discuss the extent of abuse being faced by female politicians and what action political parties really should take. Claire and Valeska, thank you so much for joining me on the Public Sector Marketing Show. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. We're happy to be here. So I came across your work uh, listening to radio and there was extensive media coverage of the new toolkit that you guys developed. But first of all, Claire, tell us what was the catalyst or the motivation to create it? Well, we were approached um, by the National Women's Council. Um, they had received funding from the department to undertake some kind of a, a very small piece of research on the extent to which women were experiencing violence online, women in politics, and really to develop a toolkit that was aimed or targeted at political parties. Now, I suppose this was important because we do tend to, in the sector, we do tend to talk an awful lot about the role that social media platforms play in trying trying to mitigate um, against and, and deal with violence against uh, political women online. But there hadn't been as much of a focus on the role that political parties can play. And political parties play a really key role um, because the vast majority of, um, of, of, of women in politics are attached to a political party so they can support their, their, their women who experience this. But we also know from research that a number of perpetrators of online abuse are members of political parties whether that's opposing parties or in some cases the party in which the woman herself is also a member of so they play a key role so really we were asked to develop this toolkit to try and give parties a very practical um, uh, way that they could not only support uh, survivors who have gone through this but also put in place policies and procedures to take a zero tolerance approach to this behavior and also a number of other pieces of work that they could conduct at a more kind of national level as a group so bringing all parties together to try and counteract it. Valeska, how big a problem is online abuse against women in politics, not just in Ireland, but potentially globally? Well, I can say this is a huge problem. So this is very strong uh, in Ireland and also in other countries. And this is in particular a problem that can uh, make women live uh, their political life because they, uh, they suffer threats, they suffer abuse, and basically there is very little support or there is very little that they can do to stop it. So I think um, one of the motivations for us to, to be working on this toolkit is to have some kind of guidance for political parties so they would know what to do because we have sense that there is this... Um, general idea that uh, political violence online it's part of being a politician but it shouldn't be like this doesn't have to be like this so people they deal in a different way so men and women they deal with this type of abuse in different ways but we know and research shows that this is really the case that women they suffer more abuse online and the type of abuse they suffer it's more extreme especially if it's we are talking about someone from a migrant or minority background so this is a huge problem. It can be um, so serious to a point to be criminal, but we don't see um, so much engagement from 
the groups or uh, or the people with the power to actually change that. So this is the reason that this toolkit was directed to political parties because we believe that they are uh, they especially in terms of uh, being a political part of political institutions that they have the means that they have the resources but they don't have so far uh, the the amount the amount of commitment that they should have because they can do something and especially they can set these standards of behavior they can set an example so we are motivating them with this toolkit uh, to move forward with this to create um, a space where all parties are involved and everyone is playing by the same roles so we hope that from the political parties this can move to the public discussion so members of the public they will also uh, learn that they need to respect politicians and especially women in politics there is there evidence to suggest that women are more targeted female politicians are more targeted by than male politicians when it comes to online abuse this is a really interesting question. So I suppose it's important to, to state from the outset that men also experience very, very high levels of online abuse. Um, and actually, there is some research from the UK, one particular study we do refer to, which shows actually that men were getting higher levels of, of abuse that, than, than women were. The distinction is, though, and I think this is a really important one, is that when women receive online abuse, it tends to be much more gendered and misogynistic in its context. And actually, for, for women from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, it also tends to be highly racialized as, as well. So what I mean by that is that, yes, men are experiencing very high levels of, of abuse, but it tends to be more generalized. For women, it descends into comment. It's much more likely to descend into commentary about their physical appearance, their voice, um, their 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 um, uh, personal relationships, their their sex lives, even. Um, <clears throat> so it's highly misogynistic and highly gendered. And we also know too, and we have looked at this in the two, if based on the research that we looked at, we also know that women are much more likely to get threats, rape threats, and death threats, uh, and and other very very serious uh, uh, threats online. So I, I think it's that's that's an important distinction um, to make. Uh, to come back to the point, I suppose, or to look at it from a more intersectional point of view, um, women, um, as I said, who are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, are highly uh, disproportionately targeted with this type of, of abuse that is both gendered and racialized in its context. We also know that LGBTQ women uh, in politics and younger women in politics experience very high levels of, of this form of, of abuse. Um, but again, this is, of course, not to take away from the fact that we know that men in politics are experiencing uh, abuse as well. But as I say, it does look very different. Yeah, and it's a really important to point that out, that it's not, you know, male versus female in this context, uh, for sure. But what about politics as an occupation, Valeska? I mean, you know, we're trying to encourage more women to come into politics. Um, I've thrown my hat in it many years ago, too. But, I mean, is the online abuse uh, for politicians a bit of a hurdle um, to, you know, growing the participation of women in, in political uh, life? Oh, you're still on mute. Um, yes, this is this is an issue because for someone who is thinking about going public with their candidacy or, or especially someone who is new to politics, they do consider this kind of thing. So uh, recently I'll, I have been organizing a public webinar for new candidates, especially uh, candidates from migrant backgrounds. And we had very long conversations about um, what's going to happen when you start your campaign. 
So of course, uh, topics like uh, sexual harassment and, and racism uh, during canvassing, for example, was something that came out. So people understand in a way that being in, in public, being a public person attracts a lot of attention and attracts a lot of criticism, which is normal. We can say it's normal in politics. This is part of the political debate that you, you exchange ideas. Sometimes people are not very respectful. But then here we're speaking about crossing that line and going to a point where you are threatening someone's life, you are abusing someone online, because abuse it happens online and offline. But online is when it happens online, it's it happens in a space where people feel or, or think that there are no rules attached, that they can say whatever they want with no consequences. And one of the challenges is that when people do this, when people abuse a politician online, so far what we see, it's basically there is no no sanctions, no consequences on that. So so what we would, we would like to, to see here is a space where we can see some type of regulation. So here I'm speaking about, for example, social media companies like uh, Twitter and Facebook having very serious regulations when uh, someone do abuse someone, there will be sanctions, there will be expelled, they will be suspended for a while. The same should be happening inside the political parties. They should sanction their members because there is a lot of abuse happening within the parties. Uh, we know some of it when it happens, but most of it stay inside the parties. And what we hear uh, when we find in research is that most of the people who suffer this abuse, uh, sorry, this abuse, they feel that nothing is being done to protect them, that there is no spaces where they can complain safely, there is no ways to, to make, for example, anonymous complain. So those, those are the situations where politicians, especially women candidates, they should be safe because if they're not safe, they are not going to put themselves forward. So uh, forward for for election, for example. So this is very bad for, for democracy because we have these great people that they would like to contribute, to participate, but they have fear. And which kind of uh, space is that where, where people cannot go and participate because they are afraid of being abused? So it shouldn't happen. That's a great point. I mean, how can you truly be a public representative if you're doing that from a place of fear for sure so claire let's talk about the toolkit how how what 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 does it look like in in practice so it's essentially split into three components um uh, just to say for listeners it is publicly available on the national women's council's website so it's aimed at parties but of course there'll be stuff in there too for, for, for the general public and um, so it, it really it opens with um, a short but I would say comprehensive literature review of the the relevant academic studies that have been undertaken in this context on a global level um, but also looking at some other pieces of work that have been conducted by global civic society organizations and we frame online abuse of women in politics as a form of violence against women in politics because that's the way in which the United Nations is viewing it and it was really important for us I suppose to have this global perspective at the start so that the reader you know realizes or appreciates that this is not a, a phenomenon that is only isolated to Ireland or might be isolated to a couple of individual politicians this is actually a, 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 a global form of backlash as the numbers of women in politics ha has risen so you will see some some studies there um, with some 
unfortunately, but unsurprisingly shocking statistics of just how prevalent this is uh, globally. Um, we then move into, I suppose, the, the, the core uh, section of the toolkit, which is really the um, based on the research that we conducted. So we, we uh, gathered data based on a, a survey, I think a 32 question survey of political parties in Ireland, um, where we asked them a number of different questions around their policies, procedures, codes of conduct, but also more kind of, I suppose, internal cultural initiatives they might have, training, supports for women candidates, um, etc. And what was significant is that all seven major parties in Ireland, so Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin, um, the, the Green Party, Labour, the Social Democrats and PVP Solidarity, all seven major parties responded to, to that survey, um, which was significant um, for anyone who uh, researches political parties in Ireland. They will know that you wouldn't always get them, them all. Um, and I suppose that did, did suggest to us, and we, we do write this in the report, that that does show that parties do see themselves having a role to play here. Um, they, they may just need a little bit more guidance as to how exactly they can do it. So hopefully the toolkit would help them there. So as I say, that second part of the toolkit really is it delving into our data analysis. Um, in a lot more detail. And there are some kind of interesting statistics there. So one question we did ask, um, we did ask parties was, we gave them a list of different forms of online abuse. Um, so this could raise from threats of physical violence, threats of sexual violence, doxing, um, image-based sexual abuse. So it's quite a nuanced list. And we asked parties to respond on whether or not their code of conducts were, were updated enough to, I suppose, to explicitly reference those different forms of, of of abuse. So there's some data on that and some lots of other pieces of data around the different types of initiatives that are being uh, run by parties. Based on that, then our third and final component of the toolkit was a set of recommendations for parties. And we have split these across a number of key themes or pillars. So the first is around leadership. And we've based this from the global best practice examples that, you know, in order for this to be really effective, we need all parties to be on board. I mean, this is one of the reasons why gender quotas for the all elections was so successful at rising with the number of women candidates. It wasn't that it fell on one party, all parties implemented it. Now, to different degrees, but nonetheless, we know it had an impact because it was a cross-party uh, uh, rule. So we do make a number of recommendations around how party leaders can come together to try and tackle this uh, in a very effective way. So one uh, action we do suggest, and this is, this is um, I suppose, inspired by the Joe Cox Foundation in the UK, which was set up in, in the aftermath of Joe Cox murder, where the political parties there have all signed um, a, a pledge to try and tackle the, the abuse and violence against politicians in the UK. So we suggest that Ireland does something similar. And we were very happy that the Joe Cox Foundation um, and very humbled, shall I say, that the Joe Cox Foundation did endorse the toolkit. Um, the second uh, a, a pillar relates to equality functions in political parties. So we did find that the vast majority of political parties do have equality or diversity officers or some, something along those, those um, that, that remit and that they play a role in supporting underrepresented groups, but also um, uh, they or other 
other staff may have a role in terms of undertaking outreach with underrepresented groups. But we do make some recommendations as to how parties can strengthen their equality functions and particularly at local and constituency level. Um, and of course, political parties are selected at, at, at constituency level. So party members at this at this level play an important role. Um, so, for example, we are uh, recommending that parties would put in place equality officer functions at, at board level in constituencies and the branches. Um, we then have a number of recommendations around policies and reporting mechanisms. And key to this really was that parties, that their policies and mechanisms are nuanced enough to be able to, ca to capture all of the various types of abuse that women experience online. At the moment, if a woman makes a complaint or makes a report, they are being dealt with through kind of the standard channels, you know, the way any kind of a report or, or complaint is being made. So we do specify or do recommend based on research best practice that it would be more nuanced and a separate channel would be created. Um, we then have a pillar on supporting survivors, um, uh, women, of course, but also other underrepresented groups who experience this around counselling supports and um, training for people. And it was really important to us. And we spoke about this at length when we commenced this project was that we didn't want to kind of fall back on the old women have to build resilience. You know, I mean, there is, of course, an element of resilience, but, you know, women should not have to be experiencing this. It is not the cost of politics. So there is, of course, an element of resilience, but a resilience, I suppose, that considers that these are structural issues to be tackled, but also in a context of allowing women to build resilience in the sense of looking after themselves. If, if that makes sense. And um, we then have two additional pillars. One is more active engagement with party members on this issue. Because, of course, they do play a key role. For example, the PRO of the local constituency branch, you know, may well be filtering out these comments um, and they need to be supported um, and able to tell people who experience it. And finally, um, and you are talking to two political scientists, so this won't come as any surprise, but it's data, data, data. And we need a lot more data on the extent to which this is happening. So we have some recommendations there as well. So that's what it looks like. That is so comprehensive and I, I couldn't help myself but um, smirk a bit at um, the old advice of asking women to, to build resilience and um, wow, yeah, we, we definitely need to, to work harder. So a comprehensive toolkit, you've actually done the work for the political parties. I want to congratulate them on, on coming out and being so forthcoming, um, which was key to your research and then developing the toolkit. But Valeska, you know, have they signed up to the toolkit or is it too early? But how are we going to see, you know, the the waves of change happening in practice? You know, you've got the toolkit, you've got the recommendations, but what's the next step to see change? Well, I think, um, well, the toolkit is out. So I hope that since it was launched uh, last week, uh, parties, they are reading it and they are kind of uh, at least taking the time to to see what we have written here, because we do believe that this can be helpful. We do want this toolkit to make a difference, because if you look at, at the overall message of the toolkit, it's not too complicated. Actually, our toolkit is very simple. And as you said, we did the job of political parties because they should be doing these analysis internally. But then maybe it's going to take a while. We have uh, we have now this done and uh, they can use this as a reference 
because something particularly interesting about this toolkit is that we are not uh, making suggestions that they are too big or just impossible. Most of what we are asking them to do can be done within the, the party structures. Because for example, when, uh, when we think about the diversity and equality officers, those people, they already are in the party, they already exist. So we are asking parties, we are suggesting parties to give them more powers, to give them more, more data, to give them more space to do their job properly, to have more of this type of professional because we believe that, that they can make a difference. So when we make a recommendation that parties, they offer uh, constantly to, to, to their women candidates that they are suffering online abuse, some parties already do this. So we just ask them to maybe expand the service or to create the service. Because in a way, what we observed from the survey is that parties, they have a good idea of what they should be doing. And they also have a good idea of the gaps within the parties. So they are not maybe very clear on what they could do. So I think that's where this toolkit can be really useful to them. Because it's not, when you look at the five um, uh, types of recommendations we make, those are not big ones. That's something that can be done in the course in the next year or so. So hopefully in the next, in the, in, in, I don't know, by the end of 2023, uh, sorry, sorry uh, uh, 2023, or maybe by the next local election, I mean, in 2024, we will be seeing some of those changes implemented. So this is, this is what I would expect at least. Yeah. Claire, do you think there is also a role for the social networks to play in terms of preventing and punishing online abuse? Absolutely. I mean, there is a huge amount of work on the part of social platforms. Um, and I suppose our toolkit, though, it looks at the the role political parties play. This was in no way to let the social media platforms off the hook. Um, and, you know, I mean, there is there is legislation uh, uh, upcoming uh, from, from government around, I suppose, trying to be, be, you know, create better uh, structures of accountability and transparency and so on. So I think that is key. And there have been a couple of high profile examples for anyone on Irish political Twitter. Um, there have been a few high profile examples of women politicians sharing you know horrendous things that they have been sent reporting that and to be told by twitter that this didn't go against community guidelines and actually it's interesting i only this morning got a, uh, I, I i reported um an awful comment that was made to a woman politician a couple of days ago and this morning i got an email from twitter to say that this particular character didn't go against their community guidelines so i think that there's a huge amount of work there around transparency accountability um and and taking a much more nuanced um, approach as, or view as to what is and isn't, um, uh, you know, a, a form of, of abuse um, or violence. Importantly, too, and this is a point we did discuss a lot um, in the course of the research, was that, you know, political parties, you know, you know, form, you know, the vast majority of legislators come from a political party. So we do actually have an action in there to to tell, you know, to recommend to parties that they they also use this in an advocacy way, you know, that they take on their role as parliamentarians, as legislators to try and bring it, you know, put in place these legislative changes that are required. So so I agree. Um, and, you know, and outside of the political space, we know also and there's research on this to show that women journalists um, and women civic society, particularly on the left, are experiencing a lot of abuse too. So this is a, is a really entrenched global problem for any woman who really, I suppose, makes her voice heard. And I'm on the record on this podcast as saying previously that 
in the absence of strong moderation and removing uh, trolls and abusers from social networks, we may just see legislators stepping in to try and uh, deal with the problem because, you know, as far as I can see, it's it's only escalating. We had Elon Musk uh, tweeting a couple of weeks ago um, that his intention was to make Twitter a platform of free speech only within 48 hours to contextualize that tweet and to say, oh, free speech within the parameters of of legislation and making it a safe platform. So, you know, um, people have a responsibility on these platforms as well as having those big roles. But, you know, online abuse, I fear, is impossible to stamp out completely. You know, civic society, we have people who've got bad intentions, who, you know, can't control their emotions online and to use the internet um, in, in ways that uh, are intentional to damage others. But Valeska, you know, from going through this process, what what kind of ad- advice do you have or insights for people generally who may be experiencing online abuse? Well, I think the first piece of advice, which which is, is challenging to do this kind of thing, because um, each person reacts in a different way. So when we speak about resilience, I think maybe for someone who has been on social media or has been in, in the public space for longer, they already have their ways to do it. So um, when I was doing the public webinar, we brought in um, some female politicians and uh, we had exactly the same questions. So I think how you use what they, what they comment, uh, some people, they just say uh, you should just block someone who is abusing you. So this is the first thing to do. You should report them to social media. As Claire just just gave us an example, sometimes you report and nothing happens, even though when it's clearly something that shouldn't be on social media. So I still think it's worth doing, even if it's just for stats you should do, or even um, it's because that's that's the most practical thing you should do. Depending on the type of um, abuse or even the messages you are receiving, I, I have heard some people that they, that they engage and they ask the person, why are you doing this? Why are you asking like this? Where is this idea coming from? So um, this is very challenging, especially if someone is threatening you. So I don't think our interaction should happen. Depending on what's happening, you should report to the guard if this is the case. You have to be careful because you have to protect yourself both physically and emotionally. So you don't need to be a politician, uh, male or female, but especially female, to receive this kind of abuse. Like we as academics, uh, we we do receive them. We have our share of abuse just because we have uh, sometimes strong opinions, we, crit- we criticize points of view. So I think our, our institutions uh, could, be do some, uh, uh, could be doing something about it. So for example, training uh, women and uh, female politicians on how to deal with abuse, it's key. So especially how to use uh, the safe features features that uh, social media platforms they, they provide. And especially keep pushing those social media platforms to offer a safe space. So what you mentioned about about Elon Musk is something that I'm concerned because uh, he has a very particular understanding of what means free speech on social media. So we are not sure what's happened to Twitter in the next few months. I'm a user there and I'm not very happy with what, what might happen. So I'm just like in this situation where I'm just 
waiting and observing to see what's going to happen. So, but depending on the type of change that we see on Twitter, which is one of the biggest platforms for, for politicians, uh, women, they have to be aware of the options they have. If they decide to interact, if they decide to report, it's their choice. And I think political parties could offer some guidance on that according to the party rules. So there's something to think about it. So, you know, listening to you ladies and getting a real sense for the work and the outputs of your work, I feel there's a real opportunity here. Not only is there an opportunity for political parties to lead now from the front, take on your recommendations, but also to scrutinize um, the legislative foundations of how people are able to circumvent punishment when it comes to online abuse. So I, I think there's a, a double-edged uh, potential, may I say, um, from this piece of work. I think it's excellent. I was totally drawn to it, as I said, when I heard it on the radio. Um, Claire, let's remind people where they can download the toolkit and let's also remind them that not just useful for political parties, but for, for all of us and we can all lead on our own platforms and be advocates for good digital citizenship. Yeah, so it's available publicly on the National Women's Council of Ireland's uh, website. If you just go into their publications list, you'll, you'll find it there. Um, and absolutely, I mean, it's, it's tailored at political parties, but, you know, we hope it might be of use to any organisation um, where women members are, are, are dealing with, with abuse. Um, and I say, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, we know that for women journalists, and you could do a whole toolkit on women journalists, but we know that this is deeply, deeply problematic as well, including in Irish political Twitter um, and other another like um, like-minded spheres um, and also for the civic society sector um, as well. So it, it's probably can be replicated um, in other spaces. Valeska and Claire, um, thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, with me and our listeners. Congratulations on your research and the toolkit you've produced. And let's watch this topic with interest. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks a million and good to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Level up your digital skills by taking our diploma in digital marketing, plus gain an industry qualification. Use the code Digital Marketing Twenty for a twenty percent discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode sixty-four of the Public Sector Marketing Show. In this week's episode, I have some new resources for you. We now have a whole library of on-demand webinars on our website. So why not engage in a lunch and learn with your staff, play my webinar and have discussions afterwards. All of the webinars are absolutely free and we've got topics ranging from social media to crisis communication, digital PR, digital marketing and online accessibility. If you enjoy them, send me some feedback. And if it has whetted your appetite for more intense training, please feel free to get in touch. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to the Public Sector Marketing Show. If you could share the show with a public sector pro, you know they will thank you for it. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I'll see you on the next show. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Public Sector Marketing Show. This episode has ended, but your digital journey can continue. Head over to publicsectormarketingpros.com to access resources and links mentioned in today's show and to connect with Joanne and her team. Until the next time, be sure to subscribe, rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. 